Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So be aware of those things. I'm going to invite our, our friend Chris, where are you Chris, to come up and read the scripture for us before we hear the word of God today. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against, against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that they had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You know, it's been my experience uh, as a pastor at this church for about 15 years. I've, I've had this interesting uh, opportunity to walk through life with a lot of you and be there in the high moments and in the low moments. And, you know, I think you will agree with me that when you look back on your life, at the story of your life, your personal history, that if I were to ask you, tell me about some of the highlights, tell me about like your 30th birthday party, or for some of you, the 21st birthday, that's a special one, isn't it? Or the 16th when you get to drive, or the 18th when you get to vote, right? And, and you know, you look back at your wedding day, or the day your first child was born, and, and you think about those good memories, and the truth is, when I ask you about them, most of you will be able to say, yeah, that was a really great day, and you'll give me some details and all that, but for the most part, what we remember about the good days is simply this, they were real good. I enjoyed that day. It made me feel happy. But I find something interesting happens when I ask people in their recollections about the bad days. Tell me about one of the valleys in your life. Tell me about one of the dark periods you walked through that was really difficult. And usually then I can start sipping my coffee because I don't have to do any more talking. When I ask people about the dark days of their lives, they have an amazing journal written out in their minds page after page of detailed reflection about what they were feeling, what they were thinking, what they were deciding. I think that's an interesting observation that somehow the good memories in our lives are remembered in very succinct, brief ways, 
But the dark days are the days that bring real clarity to what we feel and think. Isn't that true? And even though we'd much rather have the good days than the bad ones, the truth is that we learn more, we see more, we are enlightened more quite often during the valleys of our lives and not necessarily on the mountaintop experiences. I would say in my own life that I haven't suffered very much, but the times that I walked through darkness, my eyes were usually opened up and I saw God and I saw the world around me in a very, very different way than I used to. And so I think it's important that we embrace some of the dark periods of our lives and pay attention because those are the times that God is often using trials to bring clarity to your vision. Now this story that, that, that uh, Chris just read for us, it's not one of the happy m- memories in Israelite history. Okay? It's not one of the things they look back on and say, we should throw a party in remembrance of the fall of Jerusalem. It is to this day one of the most painful and dark memories in Jewish collective memory. People still think about this as one of the horrible days in the history of their people. But we learn some very important things by looking at this story about the fall of the city of Jerusalem to the hand of the Babylonians. And I want to just point out a few things that I think are really important for us to learn about that, this, this story of the fall of Jerusalem. And the first thing I see here is that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Now, there's a lot I like and a lot I don't like about the writings of this particular author, but John Maxwell says something that I think is pretty true. In his book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, he says everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, that might be overstating things a little bit, but I think there's some validity to the statement that so much in life depends on the leaders who have influence and hold sway over groups of people. You know, in fact, if you look at every dark moment in human history, standing behind it is usually a colossal failure in leadership. There's usually one leader or a small group of leaders who took that massive power and authority and abused it or dropped the ball with it, and as a result, lots and lots of people suffered, and the entire direction of a people group or a nation went south because of it. Behind every dark chapter in human history, and probably behind every dark chapter in your own personal history, there is a failure at some level in leadership among those who had a responsibility to use that power responsibly and wisely. If you think about some of the dark chapters in your own life, chances are standing behind some of your deepest pain are teachers or mentors or parents who had an obligation to you and they failed in it. And it caused scars that still you carry with you to this day. Failures in leadership have a huge influence on the way that human lives unfold. Now, Zedekiah came to be the king under some very non-traditional circumstances. Remember a couple weeks ago, the last time I preached on this series, we, we learned about Josiah, the good king, who was a reformer. And he reignited a passion and knowledge of God among his, his fellow people in Judah, And so he led the reforms, but he died in battle. And he was called in Scripture a good king. But then his son, Jehoahaz, thank goodness nobody in our church is naming their kids after these guys because it would be a mouthful. But his son, Jehoahaz, becomes king after his death. And the Bible clearly labels him as one of the evil kings. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because of the evil he did, 
other nations around them began to have greater influence over the affairs of Judah than they did. And so as a result, this guy became a puppet king to the pharaoh Necho who reigned in Egypt. And eventually, Necho didn't like what this guy was doing, and he exiled him to Egypt. He carried him off to be a prisoner in Egypt. He was then followed by his brother Jehoiakim, who was also an evil king. And while Jehoiakim was ruling as an evil king, apart from Egypt, which was really a great power in those days, the Babylonian Empire was quietly rising in the area. And during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, became a superpower in the region and began to exert influence on Jehoiakim and the land of Judah. He rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar and he's ousted and in his place, his son Jehoiachin, try to keep all these names straight guys, this made a quiz after service. Jehoiachin comes to power and he rules a short three months before Nebuchadnezzar has had it with this guy and he takes him into exile and imprisons him and he stays in jail until very late years in his life. 37 years he spends in imprisonment and exile in Babylon. Once he removes Jehoiachin, he sets up a puppet. He takes Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah and he puts him in charge of the remnant of Jerusalem. He carries all the best people out of Jerusalem and he leaves the dregs of society, the people who had no land, no property, no training, no skills, no education, the people who the Babylonians said aren't even worth bringing to Babylon, leave them behind and let them take care of the remnant of what is the city of Jerusalem. And they put Zedekiah as king over this ragtag bunch of people who are left. Now, I don't enjoy talking about people like they're worthless people or great people, but I'm just following the description of those who are left in Scripture. That this is not the cream of the crop of Judah, but it is the very last remnant of their culture and society that was left behind. And here's Zedekiah the ruler of a very dubious city. I mean, he, it's, it's not exactly an honor when you are the uncle, last minute, put in by another king to be a puppet for another government, ruling over a group of people that could barely hold a society together. That's the circumstances under which Zedekiah became king, and he would be the last king of Judah. Now, for some of you who hate history, this is painful for you to just walk through. Right? I, mean, I know this is hard for you. A lot of meaningless names and stuff. But here's why I'm telling you this. This guy's ascent to the throne and the people who came before him were a clear pointer to this truth. That the state of the, or the well-being of Judah had everything to do with the behavior of its king. That there was a very tight relationship between how things went for the kingdom and how the king was exercising his authority. And when there was a good king in the land, something good happened among the people of Judah. They retained control over their own affairs. They were able to govern themselves. They came to know God. When they cried out in prayer, those prayers got answered. There was worship again. Hope was restored. But when the evil kings came to power, all of that began to disappear. Everything that defined them as a people group started to leak away. And so when Zedekiah came to the throne, if he was at all a student of history, and I believe we all should be, he would have seen clearly the markers, the waypoints that said, when you misbehave, when you rebel against God, you have no claim to the security that God brings. You can't expect God's protection and God's presence and God's provision for you if you just shirk God's authority completely in your life. Good kings, good leaders 
often bring good things to the groups that they lead. Why am I saying this? Look at what Zedekiah does. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and this is God's summary of his life. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now that's an an important way of phrasing it. Zedekiah's attitude is, you know what, I really don't care what you are saying as a prophet, because the person who's really holding the power in this place is me. He didn't have the humility to see that he was just a puppet king, a joke among kings. He could hardly go to a king's conference and hold his head up high because everyone else would be like, dude, I I rule over this empire and that empire, and they would get around. You know at conferences how they do that? Small groups, you sit in a circle and you kind of tell your story. And here's Zedekiah. Um, Well, you know, when my nephew got kicked out, the other king kind of put me as a babysitter over the, the city. That's his claim to fame. But he didn't have the humility to realize what a shabby context in in which he came into power. He thought he was the man. And when Jeremiah began to say things about the future doom of the city of Jerusalem, if he did not repent, he blew him off. And do you see how he phrased it? He said, you know what? Even though Jeremiah is actually speaking from the mouth of the Lord, he's blowing Jeremiah off. He's saying, I don't really care what you have to say. You're just another man. Neglecting the fact that Jeremiah as a prophet spoke for God. He wasn't just rejecting the words of a man. He was rejecting God himself. And when you have that kind of attitude towards God, when people are speaking on God's behalf into your life, and you have that talk-to-the-hand attitude, trouble is not far behind. You know, you can say, well, you're not saying it the right way. You're not approaching me the right way. You should be wiser about the way you talk to me. You should be more uplifting. You can criticize the messenger a lot. But at some point, you have to watch your heart because if there's a shift in your attitude and you begin to disregard God, something is going on in your spiritual life that really spells danger for the future. And when you have that rebellious attitude towards God, rebellion and pride are very rarely contained. And so now Zedekiah begins to feel himself and he goes, you know what? In fact, not only am I going to reject Jeremiah and reject God, I'm also going to reject Nebuchadnezzar. Who is this joker sitting in Babylon pulling the strings like he's a puppet master? Now here's the thing about Zedekiah, right? He had ruled nine years before all this rebellion reached its climax. And in those nine years, he had some small measure of success. He took this ragtag group of people and he began slowly to rebuild society in Jerusalem. He trained some of the men into a fighting force, a a little army. He got the shopkeepers back in the shops. He got commerce running again. He got people guarding the walls. And so as a little mini kind of ghetto king, he became something of a, a power within the city and he started to believe his own press. And he thought, hey, maybe I am a real king after all. Maybe I'm greater than everyone's telling me I am, and maybe this Nebuchadnezzar guy who thinks he has all this power over me doesn't recognize what a true leader I really am. And so though it's totally clear who's more powerful, he begins to distort his view of himself, and he starts rebelling even against Nebuchadnezzar. Never mind that when Nebuchadnezzar gave him his authority, he made him swear in the name of his own God that he would, he would have allegiance to Babylon. He just blew all that off. And do you see the picture that I'm painting of Zedekiah? This is a guy who began humbly, right, understanding in in a way how small his beginnings were, but over time he started to believe that he was something. 
And as a result of it, he began to disregard every other power and every other authority in his life. And as a result, it made him a horrific leader. There's nothing scarier than a person who has power and authority but lacks the wisdom and the righteousness to use it well. And that's true if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a president, if you're a general, if you are a leader in any capacity, even if you're the shift manager at a restaurant that no one eats at, in any capacity of leadership, there are very few things scarier on this earth than someone with power who lacks the good sense to use it wisely. When a person rejects all other authorities, their own authority is ultimately invalidated. Another way of saying it is a person who doesn't know how to follow doesn't really know how to lead. The attitude of the king, not surprisingly, was infectious. And it says, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. All that to say that leaders ultimately shape the complexion of the people they lead. You might think that you're really independent, that you are a free thinker, your own person. We all like to imagine that we're more independent than, than, we, than we really are. But the truth is that leaders have an incredible amount of influence over the cultures and people groups and organizations, and they have a huge impact on the way things go for us. And the reason I'm saying that is leadership absolutely matters. You can look at things that fall apart and say, how did this happen? And I'm telling you, almost always it boils down to failures in leadership. That has a couple implications for us. One is when you're looking for a place to belong to, when you're looking for some place to work, a place to go to church, a place to live, look at the leaders carefully. Study the kind of people who have authority in that place and watch how they use it. Because if they use it without wisdom and righteousness, your own life is going to be caught up in the mess that they will create in that place. You know, you might like everyone around you, but if you're looking at the leaders and they're a mess, I promise you, your time in that organization will fall apart. It will lead to heartache. Be very careful what kind of authorities you take over yourself. You know, one of the great things about living in America is that you know, we have so much freedom of choice. We get to decide often where we're going to live, where we're going to go to school, where we're going to work, who we're going to marry. In other words, so often we get to choose the leaders who have authority over us. Exercise that with wisdom because once a person has authority over you, they will shape your life far more than you realize. I think the second implication for us is if you are a leader, and chances are every one of you is a leader in some context, big or small, sitting in this room. If you're a leader at any level, even if you are 12 years old and you're kind of the leader of your little crew of friends, exercise your leadership with humility and wisdom. The things you do in your rebellion will infect other people. And the consequences are huge when leaders fail. Zedekiah was supposed to be the king who could have brought, brought Judah out of the slump they were in. Instead, he drove them further in, and his failure was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Judah, together under his leadership, crossed the line that they didn't recover from. Still really haven't recovered from to this day. 
Here's the second principle that I see in this story. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. You guys might recognize this image as Buddy Jesus from the, the motion picture Dogma. Do you guys, any of you see that movie? It's a pretty irreverent film, but it, it makes some uh, very interesting and valid points in a very irreverent way. Okay? And this is Buddy Jesus, the agreeable, friendly Jesus who doesn't judge you, who doesn't care about your sins, who just wants to be your friend. You know what I'm saying? Now this image always reminds me of the tension that we live with as followers of, of Christ. Is that at, at, on the one hand, God is very near to us and wants to be our friend. It's not so out of the question to think of Jesus as my buddy in the sense that he wants intimacy with me. He wants me to be near him and not feeling really far away, a thousand miles away. But at the same time, we hold in tension this other truth, this counterbalancing truth, that while Jesus is our good friend, he is also the Lord of the universe and one not to be trifled with. Somebody you don't take lightly or be dismissive of because even though he's your friend, he is still God. This is the tension we always hold in our hearts and in our minds as Christians is that God is at the same time near to us and very, very different from us, very above us. How do we reconcile that? Well, one of the, the principles that governs how we relate to God is this. We do not mock God. The dictionary defines the word mock as to treat with contempt or ridicule or derision. Another way of looking at that word is to challenge or defy. I think the, the bottom line of the word mock is this. It's to blow somebody off. To write him off as someone you can safely ignore. Kind of like, you know, like, um, let's say you're afraid of dogs, okay? And, and there's a German shepherd. You might, you might kind of be wary about that German shepherd. But then you walk into a house and there's, there's that little chihuahua. And why is it that the smaller the dog is, the more noise it makes? I guess that's kind of true of people too, right? Maybe it's insecurity or something. But, you know, you walk into a house and there's that little chihuahua yapping away at you like it's, you know, and, and what is your thought as you walk into the house? Are you afraid of that chihuahua? Well, some people, I mean, some people, the fear of dogs, it doesn't matter if it's a toy dog. But when I look at that chihuahua, I'm thinking in my mind, I want to I drop kick that little thing so bad. It, it makes a lot of noise, but it creates zero fear. I walk around, it could be biting my ankles and I don't even notice because it's so small, it's so negligible, I feel safe blowing it off. I'll look at it and go, nye, 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 nye. and I wouldn't do that to a Rottweiler or a pit bull who was growling at me. I mean, I'm not stupid, but to a Chihuahua, no problem. Get off me, stupid. You don't scare me. All your yapping is just static in my ears. You know, the only way you can safely mock someone is to begin by belittling who they are in your mind to so lower their status and your perception of their power that you, it's like there's no consequence for mocking them, for blowing them off, for writing them off as nothing because there is never going to be a cost to be paid for treating them with contempt. The truth is that a lot of people, perhaps some of us in this room, have that exact posture towards Jesus Christ right now. You, you sit through these sermons trying really hard to stay awake, and part of it might be my fault, I've got to work harder, but part of it might be that somewhere in the back of your mind, God is not really God. 
He is not the creator of the universe, the one who speaks with thunderous authority. But he's this lame guy sitting up far away from you, disconnected from your life, who makes a lot of noise and says a lot of rules and thou shalt and thou shalt not. But as you hear it, it doesn't hit any pay dirt in your heart. It doesn't scare you. It doesn't inspire you. It doesn't strike reverence. It doesn't call you to action. It's just more words. In a world filled with words, even God's words are just more noise. And after a while, you realize you can walk out of every Sunday service going, that was kind of funny. He said a few good one-liners, a couple zingers. I'm going to go home and live just like I did last week. This had no impact on my life whatsoever. And if that describes how you feel about God and His Word, this message will serve for you as a loving but urgent wake-up call. If you can safely disregard God, write Him off, mock Him in your heart, then there is no one who can break through to you. Something has broken inside of you, and now you have no capacity to recognize any authority. You have, in effect, become God unto yourself. And you are the one who decides what is true, what matters, what's worthwhile. No one else can speak into your life, not even God. Look what it says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Let me tell you, that's no exaggeration. God was exceedingly patient with Judah. In fact, do you know that the destruction of Jerusalem that ultimately came is the most prophesied about event in all of the Bible? There are no fewer than 608 occurrences of prophecy concerning the future doom of Jerusalem if they would not repent and turn to the Lord. Those 608 prophecies are spread over 17 books of the Bible. I don't know about you, but that's an exceedingly patient God I'm seeing. This is a God who doesn't give one warning or two warnings, but 608 warnings. How many of you parents give your kids 608 warnings? Well, if you do, I don't want your kid near my kid because he's a monster, right? I mean, think about it. 608 warnings, that's like a, that kid's just gone. And yet this God of ours is trying to make the point that he's not one sitting on the edge of his judgment seat waiting to throw lightning bolts down on people. He has compassion on his people. He loves his people. He keeps hoping for the best, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. How low a view of God must they have had to blow off 608 different warnings? When God is saying to them, listen, you think this is all garbage, but these things are going to happen. You don't play games with me. When I say as God, something's going to happen. It's going to happen, baby. You can't dodge it. You can't find a loophole. When the sovereign God says X will lead to Z, lead to Y to Z, it's going to happen. You can't find another arrow. You can try, but all the money in the world, all the power in the world, cannot stand up to the simple word of God. How low a view of God would a person need to have that no matter how many times God reaches after them, they stiff arm him. They say, you know, not today. I'm not in the mood. Don't give me that Bible talk anymore today. Some of you 
people who care about you have been reaching after you for a really long time trying to talk about something in your life that's not really quite right. And you get irritated whenever the subject comes up. People say, man, you know, I've got to talk to you about your anger. It's really becoming a problem. And you say, you know what, don't talk to me about that. I don't like discussing that. You don't have a right to talk to me about it. And we create this force field around us that says, you, you are, if, if you want to bring this up with me, you're going to get nothing but punishment back from me. I, that's off limits, man. You do not bring that up around me. I think that was the attitude of Zedekiah and all of the people in Jerusalem with him. No matter how many times God reached after them. And listen, uh, they kept mocking. Okay, here, here listen. This is a picture of my kids. Okay? These kids are the treasure of my heart, sometimes also the bane of my existence, but they are the treasure of my heart. And I understand what God is feeling. You know, there are times when as a fallible human father, I want to just smack them down. Parents, can I get an amen? Yeah, you want to... That was a little too quick. You might want to just encourage the... But sometimes you just want to, you know, pow! You know, the, not the real punch, but the wrestling punch. A lot of noise and just a little fake. But, you know, I, sometimes you want to just really smack your kids down because they're just so rebellious. But the truth is, most of the time, I set the standard. I say, listen, if you guys don't do this, you're going to be grounded tomorrow from the thing that we've been looking forward to. Let's say they've been waiting to go to Chuck E. Cheese for like a month. Chuck E. Cheese, Chuck E. Cheese, and they can't wait. But you say, if you don't finish your veggies, there's no Chuck E. Cheese tomorrow. And you say it very clearly, like six or seven times, if you don't finish your vegetables, there is no Chuck E. Cheese tomorrow. What do those kids do every time? I'm going to finish my vegetables. I don't want to finish. And they don't do it. And you come to this moment where you're like, all right, I've been saying it like six or seven times. Is my word going to mean anything? You've got to enforce it at some point. You can't be soft forever. But even as you get ready to take away the Chuck E. Cheese that's been drawing their hearts forward for like a month, how do you feel about that? Well, some parents, they're really evil. Like, <laughs> I can't wait to see the, the disappointment and the slow death creeping into their eyes as the, the dreams are shattered. You know, can't wait to rob them of their childhood happiness. But most of us aren't like that, are we? Even as you're taking it away and you see how crestfallen they are and they realize that they've just crossed the line and you're not kidding around anymore and they've just blown it. As you see their faces turn into frowns, how do you feel? I've got to tell you, I never, ever feel good at that moment. Ever. I hate it. Everything inside me wants to backpedal and say, you know what, I'll give you one more chance because I want you kids to enjoy Chuck E. Cheese. And I kind of like it too. So, I, you know, I, I actually don't, but you know, like you're kind of feeling like I, I want to give you what I see your heart so longs for, but you back me into a really tough corner. I've got to be the parent, but I hate this moment where the hammer has to come down. We understand that, don't we? And that's the way God feels. He has compassion on us. He loves us. And so he's trying and he's hoping that we will, we will listen, that he'll break through. And for some of us, in the 11th hour, God pierces through that hard shell and our hearts are won over. We finally see the light of day and we soften. But some of us, we've got to win every fight we're in, even the stupid ones. 
Even the ones that winning ultimately makes you a loser, you've got to win those too. And you've actually bought this idea that you could win an arm wrestling match with God. That you can go toe-to-toe with this God and blow him away. And he says, you have no idea who you are dealing with today. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Listen to this ominous phrase, until there was no remedy. He had taken all he was going to take and a line had been crossed and God said, now you're going to see not my compassion and my patience, but you must by necessity see my wrath. He doesn't relish it. He doesn't enjoy it. But it is now an absolute necessity because nothing else will awaken these people. That's that hard moment that we as parents are often driven to and God feels exactly the same way at that moment. He doesn't enjoy the consequence that's coming. He doesn't look forward to it, but there's no way out of it because the people have left him no choice. Here, here's the bottom line of it, okay? God will be patient, but he will not be mocked. Here's the difference. When we're genuinely struggling to recognize him, to obey him, to stop being distracted, God is patient with us. You know how like when you're saying to your kids, come up and brush your teeth, but they're watching the last three minutes of an awesome Spongebob episode, and you're like, come up and brush your teeth, and they're like, okay, Dad, but their eyes are transfixed. And you know how it is when you're a kid, cartoons are just like drugs, you, know, you can't tear your eyes away. And I remember what it's like to be a kid, so I'm not going to bring the hammer down. It's three minutes. They're going to finish the show and come up. So I'm like, all right, but as soon as it's over, come up. Because that's a genuine struggle. You're caught in this tension of wanting to finish something and knowing you have a responsibility. And God, like a good father, is patient when we're genuinely struggling. But there's a shift that happens when it's no longer about I'm struggling, I want to, but right now I'm distracted. There's whatever, Dad. Your word means nothing to me. Yep, 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 yep. I'll come up when I'm good and ready. That's when it goes from struggling to mockery. That's when you have put yourself in a dangerous place because if you can disregard God that thoroughly, it is not good for you. Never mind that it offends him deeply. It's also not good for you because as your father, his voice is life and safety and direction for you. It is a lamp that lights your path And without that voice, you will be utterly lost and defenseless. And he knows that. It is not good for any of us to cast God in that dismissive light. And when we shift from genuine struggle to flat-out mockery, we force God's hand. There is no remedy. The only thing that will wake up a mocker is calamity. The consequence long promised has finally got to arrive or that stubborn heart will never, ever wake up. And because God loves us as his children, he will not let us hear empty warnings forever. Eventually, God must prove himself true to his word and defend his honor and let us know that when he says something will happen, there's going to be a cost to pay for ignoring him. I wonder if any of us are in that place this morning 
of having heard God and heard God and heard God, but never really acknowledging Him. Just blowing it off. And God has come to a point now in His relationship with you where He says, enough of the warnings. There is now no other remedy. I have to give you the calamity once promised so you know what it is to stand apart for my protection and my provision, my presence. Here's the last thing. The unthinkable actually can happen. You know, sometimes in our pain or in our pride, we become arrogant and we start believing we'll actually be better off without God. We think of God as this pesky, nagging voice like a mosquito buzzing in our ear, and we think, if I could just get him off my back, I'd be so much happier, so much freer. I could do whatever I want, and nobody's going to give me any hassle. When you think that way, what, you real, what you're going to come to realize is we never realize how much benefit we draw from God in our lives until God removes himself from the picture. You don't realize how much protection, how much provision you get from him, how much comfort you draw from his presence until all of that is hidden behind a wall and suddenly you're on your own. It's what you asked for, what you wished for, and when you get it, you suddenly realize with a sobering clarity that you need God far more than you ever acknowledged. Some of you have received grace from God you haven't even asked for. He loves you and He has put a hedge of protection around you. But make no mistake, when He withdraws that, you will have a taste of what it is to truly live without God. And everyone I've ever known who has taken that, that leap, who has stepped away from God and said, I don't really need you right now, back off a little bit, I'm going to try it on my own. I have never seen that person be better off for that decision. You know, Zedekiah thought that if he could just silence the prophet Jeremiah, get Nebuchadnezzar off his back, get every other authority off his shoulders, he would be a free man. And here was Jeremiah all along saying one thing over and over in his prophecies. If you don't repent and turn to God, your kingdom will shatter and the holy city Jerusalem will be lost. Now here's what I think was going on in Zedekiah's mind. He's thinking, well, I know he's threatening that, but there's no way that he's going to do that. I imagine when, when I threatened at times, I might have to get rid of the Xbox, my sons are thinking, yeah, all right, whatever, Dad. But there's no way he's going to do that. Why? Because even though you want to punish us, it's too important to you. You will never mess with that. It's sacred in our house. It's holy. <laughs> all right, but you get what I'm saying. When you think about the city of Jerusalem, it's hard for us in America to have anything close to an appreciation for what that city meant to the people of, of Jerusalem, of Israel. We don't have the attachment to a place the way these folks did because our oldest cities are maybe 300 years old. What is it like to know that a city belonged to your people for a thousand years? That it was the place that was the earthly dwelling place of the one true living God? that he actually lived in a building in your city. What is it like to, to know that and to have this deep attachment? And what the reasoning was, was God can yap all he wants about Jerusalem, but there's no way he's going to mess with Jerusalem. It's sacred. Even God won't follow through because he loses just as much as we do. 
If he destroys Jerusalem, he's going to be homeless. Stupid logic, I know. But that's the reasoning. Is This is too sacred. We're safe blowing this off because there are certain lines that even God won't cross. I bet we have those lines in our lives as well, don't we? Things that we think in our lives are off limits even to God. Things so sacred to us that even God won't go there no matter what. Not my health, no. That would be totally unfair of God. He would never strike me with illness because health is sacred. What would God be if he ever did anything to my health? Certainly not my kids, not my job, not my fortune, not this, not that, because these things are all too important to me. God, if he's fair, would never touch them. So Zedekiah and the people of Jerusalem, insulated in this wrong thinking, continue to blow God off, and this was the price to be paid. He brought up the, the king of the Chaldeans, that's the king of the Babylonians, who, after they broke through the city, killed everybody that they could get their hands on in that first attack. There's no place sacred. They walk right into the sanctuary of the temple and slaughter people in that place of worship. Men, women, old, young, married, virgin, it didn't matter. They slaughtered them. Then they took away all the riches stored up in the temple, all the valuable precious stones and metals, and they carted them away. And worst of all, they took away all the precious young people in Jerusalem, all the talent, all the future, the promise. That was the greatest treasure in the city was their people. And even those were carted away. You know, when the Babylonians came to take Jerusalem, they didn't just attack it head on. They started a siege that was just awful. They surrounded the city with a vast army, causing all the surrounding countryside people to flee into the fortified city, overcrowding the city, taxing its resources. You can imagine the scene, a city that had practically doubled in population without preparing for this. No stores of food or water. Within four months, food was so scarce that the Bible records mothers began boiling their own children to eat them just to stay alive. Friends would see their friend die of starvation and without a second thought would butcher them and eat them just in an urgency to go on living themselves. This was a horror inside the city of Jerusalem during this terrible siege. And we see two things happen as the final straw breaks the camel's back and God begins to rise up in his wrath. First, the unthinkable things happen inside of them. These people never thought that they'd be capable of eating their own young. How many of you are parents right now? Do you think you'd ever get hungry enough to eat your own children? No, I'm looking at you. Pay attention. Do you think that you as a parent would ever get hungry enough to boil your own child and eat them? Right now, every one of you is going, dude, I'd rather starve to death. That's what everyone in Jerusalem thought. But when you get far from God... Everything starts to blur, and what soon happens is things you never imagined you could be capable of doing, you could find yourself doing. That story has written itself over and over a thousand times, and I've watched it in dozens and dozens of cases. People who took that first step away from God and thought they'd be better off, and at the end of the day, they were doing things that they never imagined they were capable of doing. They say to themselves and they say to me, what happened to me? How did I end up here? I said, well, that's one of the things that happens when we drift from God is the unthinkable happens in us 
But the unthinkable also happens around us. The city that was the crown jewel of God on the earth was sacrificed. God followed through. He actually did what he threatened, even though he had so much to lose. And what's the bottom line message of that decision by God? It is this, that the most precious thing to God was not the city, but the people in it. The thing that was most important to God was the relationship that was being lost with the people he loved. And it was his honor that was being defiled. And these things troubled the heart of God so that when he looked at it and he said, I'm going to fight for these people and I will spare no expense. No matter how sacred, how important these golden calves are to them, I will shatter it all. There's nothing I will not break to chase down this lost relationship. City, temple, who cares? They're just buildings. It's what goes on in those buildings that matters to God and that was breaking all over the place. We think that there are these sacred cows in our lives that God would never touch. Make no mistake, He will shatter everything to come after you. And it's mercy, not vengeance, that drives that. He loves you enough that nothing will stand in His way as He's chasing hard after you. If you drift from Him, Nothing is off limits. He will break it all to get through to you. This is our God. You want to understand what I'm talking about? I love my car. It's a 2004 Honda Accord. Some of you ballers are like, whatever, man. But it is my treasure. I love that car. But if my kids were trapped inside that car, I'd be the first one grabbing a rock and shattering the window. I don't care. I like my house, but if my kids are trapped in my house, I promise you I'm the first one kicking down the front door. Or at least trying, and then maybe calling Jason to finish the job. But you know, I'd at least try to kick down the door. Because as much as I love my house, and under normal circumstances, I would shut the door gently. When something I love is standing between me and... I'll, I'll tell you right now, I will shatter it all to rescue the ones I love. No object is more important than the ones I love. And if I, as a human being, understand that, how much more must God feel that? These things you think are so sacred mean nothing. If you drift from God and He's losing you, He will fight for you. He will come after you. He will rise up against you and nothing will be spared because He loves you too much to let your sacred cows stand between you and Him. The city had to be destroyed so the people would awaken to the seriousness and the commitment of the love of God for them. Some of you will have to learn this the hard way. I don't know why, but some people are just wired that way. They just cannot learn from words. They can only learn from pain. And I understand that. I don't suppose there's anything that I can do to change that. But I hope that these words will be planted in your mind forever. So that when that day comes where your own holy city is going up in flames. Instead of becoming bitter, instead of resenting God, you will understand how serious He is about coming after the ones He loves. There's nothing off limits, people. Nothing. Because God cares about us that much. And Before we're tempted to make ourselves the center of the universe, know this too. God's own honor matters to him. You besmirch my name, talk bad about my wife, 
we're going to have some words in the parking lot. First few will be kind. The last probably won't be. Even I want to defend my own honor. Don't you think that God's honor matters to him? Let's never forget who he is. And this God will win. He won't let you go. He's like a pit bull. And if you're drifting from him, he will come after you. And this God, who Romans 8.32 tells us, did not even spare his own son. He will spare no expense to call you back to himself, to call you to come back running to him. On July 28th, in the year 586 B.C., the people of Jerusalem saw for the first time with great clarity how serious God was when the Babylonians broke through that wall. I wonder what it's going to take for some of us and the people we love for God to break through that wall. It's my hope that you can hear the words and not have to endure the pain. That you won't be like Zedekiah and blow off the one who speaks for God. I'm humble as I say that. It's a strange thought to me that I speak for God at this moment. But if he's speaking and reaching after you, listen. Hear his voice. Don't blow him off. Because he will stop at nothing to be heard. it would be a good time to bow together. This message might not apply to you right at this moment. You might be living in a good place with God right now, but I know how all of our human hearts are. There will come a day when you have to remember these words. Remember that God is patient, but he will not be mocked. He will not be disregarded forever. He will not be belittled in the hearts and minds of people he created. And he will spare nothing, nothing, not even his own son, to call you back to him. He loves you that much and nothing is off limits. Let's respond to this God before we have to pay that great price. I'm going to just leave it to you to respond to God wherever this finds you this morning. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.